How's it going, everybody? And welcome to episode 205 of Master My Garden Podcast. Now, this week's episode, I'm delighted to be joined for the second time by Niall Hatch from Birdwatch Ireland. And the last time we recorded was in the very early days of the podcast. It was actually episode 34, which was September 2020. And we were in the the midst of lockdowns and semi-lockdowns and whatnot at the time. And we met and had a, an in-person interview in the East Coast Nature Reserve, the Birdwatch Island, the East Coast Nature Reserve. And that to this day is still one of the most popular episodes of the podcast. And, you know, anything to do with with wild birds, garden birds is hugely popular. But I said we'd get Niall back on now. We're coming into the period of the year. I mentioned it on last week's podcast about, you know, jobs to do for the month of November and get your feeding station set up and so on. So we're going to we're going to talk about all of that and all of the other, I suppose, good work that Niall and the rest of the team of Budworth Island are doing. So, Niall, you're very, very welcome to Master My Garden Podcast. It's great to be back. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, thank you for the for the previous episode as well. I I, I really enjoyed myself. I remember that was such a lifeline for me during that lockdown time. We actually got to go out into the open air in the nature reserve, just have that human contact again and talk yeah. to, talk to people about nature. It was lovely. So thank you for that. It was very enjoyable, and I actually flicked back to just to see what number it was at that time uh, because I wanted to just mention it in the intro and it's episode thirty four. But I was just looking as I checked back on it. It was just shy of an hour long um <laughs> so it was a, it was it was definitely one of the longer ones but still to this day is one of the most popular episodes of the podcast is consistently hovering around the top 10 which is quite good at this stage because in the early days you know po- obviously the podcast was quite new at that stage uh so for one of those episodes to be still there i suppose is a testament to what we we're talking about and i suppose the interest that people have in birds um at that time, we talked all about, you know, feeding, how to feed, what to how to set up, and we'll talk about all of that again today. But I know at that stage, the uh, garden bird survey was, you know, that Birdwatch Ireland do was was, I think, it was in its relatively early years, if if I'm correct in saying that. But you have your three three four three years on from that now, essentially. Uh, and there must be a good bit of data starting to build up. So maybe tell us a little bit about that first. Oh, I will. It's actually been going a very long time, that survey. So it's actually, okay. I believe, at, at the moment we're, we're, we're speaking now, uh, the, the new season just launches today, as it happens. Oh, it runs for 13 weeks, but this is actually the 35th season we've done. So the data we get from that is truly phenomenal. We get a, a huge, uh, you know, huge interest in this one all over the country. And that's how we know so much about Ireland's garden bird populations. It tells us a huge amount about how they're reacting to things like plants, climate change, uh, pollution, all sorts of other disturbance events, things like that, and availability of food. So it tells us a huge amount. It's uh, certainly our flagship citizen science project. It's it, okay. meaning that it's it's getting it's mobilizing the general public to become scientists and to contribute their data to, to our conservation efforts. We could never in a million years um, manage to, to, to mobilize that number of professional staff or professional bird surveys to do this. But we have thousands of people freely giving their, their, their own time over the course of the 13 weeks the survey runs each winter. And the data we get from that is, is truly phenomenal. And because we've been doing it for such a long period of time, um, the, the data, you're quite right, it's very interesting, the things that we're seeing. So uh, one of the things that's been quite stark over the last couple of years is you know, we're seeing some birds declining quite severely. One would be a bird called the greenfinch, which has suffered from a pandemic of its own. There's a disease called trichomoniasis that's been hitting that bird very hard. And from the, uh, the, the, the survey over the last few years, we've seen a decline of 47% in that species in Irish gardens over the course of just 10 years. Which is really really stark, uh, so it just goes to show that um, you know that uh, even birds that are sometimes once considered common, uh, they're not always the case. 
People think, I suppose, that in Birdwatch Ireland, we might only be concerned about the really rare birds and trying to save the endangered ones. But the fact is, although that, that is very important, the fact is you can actually tell a lot more about the health of the environment from the common bird species because okay. it's in those birds where actually more people will actually see them. We're more likely to spot trends in their populations. So although the birds themselves may remain very common, some are becoming more common, some becoming less common, or they're changing their distribution. That's very telling. Uh, so having that data set built up over such a long period of time with so many people in their own gardens, you don't have to go to some exotic place to do this, in their own gardens, it tells us a huge amount. Yeah. Um, and it's something I would encourage everyone to do. You can find the details on our website, it's birdwatcharn.ie. Uh, it runs for 13 weeks. We'd love you to do as many of those weeks as possible. Whatever data you can give us is great. Sometimes people tell us, uh, you know, I, what the, I, don't have, I, I don't have any birds in my garden, there's no point in me doing the survey. That's data. The absence of birds is important information as well. So there's no okay. excuse. Anyone can take part, really. And so just to talk about how and I'm going to go back to what you mentioned there a second ago, but just to how the survey works. So somebody signs up, um, they get a check sheet, I guess, of uh, what you have in your garden. I suppose, does that include, you know, what trees, hedges, is that type of thing? And then from there, there's a checklist of birds. Is that how it works? Yeah, that's it in a nutshell. Yes, absolutely. So the, there's two ways you can take part. You can you can download a, a PDF from our website and print it off and have a paper form, which a lot of people like to do. Um, or do that that's uh, it, it's printed in the in the winter issue of our Brotherton's Wings magazine that goes out to our members each each winter as well. Uh, or you can take part purely online. We have an online portal that works very well. You can log in there and put your your, your sightings in of the birds. Uh, so whatever's the easiest for you to get the data to us. And yes, the first part of the the, the survey it's a questionnaire um, about the size of your garden, uh, what sort of food, if any, you put out for the birds, if you put out water for them. And in very simple terms, what kind of plants are there, particularly if you have plants that have berries on them. So it's not mm -hmm. very technical at all. It's just a sort of general overview of that kind of thing. And of course, where in the country you are. Um, so we're able to, we're able to, Location, to put your yeah. data in context. Exactly, yeah. So yeah. And, and air codes have made that a lot a lot simpler now than they did in the early years of the survey. So it's actually very yeah, more precise. Pinpoint. Precisely. Um, you mentioned greenfinch is one bird that's declining because of a of a disease within within the green finch is that unique to green finches or does it also affect other finches it does affect other finches uh, but the green finches seem to get it worse so, so okay. we know that uh, we know that all finch species that come into our garden are susceptible to this and um, some other birds like sparrows pigeons and hawks they can catch it as well most okay. birds it seems are immune so your blackbirds your your robins your blue tits they don't seem to have anything to fear from this disease and i should stress that we humans as well have nothing to fear Mam mammals like ourselves can't be affected so okay. we're fine so our cats dogs guinea pigs sheep cows horses all of these no nothing can affect them with, with this in terms of this disease it's thought that one of the reasons why it affects the green finches worse than other types of finch is that green finches uh, in the winter when they're flocking it seems that sometimes they pass food from beak to beak to strengthen this flock bond and oh. they pass the infection when they do that so they have more close contact than some of the other finches do it's a waterborne disease so it's spread by infected saliva uh, and uh, so it can get into into bird baths or drinking puddles as well very important to keep your feeders and your bird baths very clean uh, to prevent the spread of this disease or at least to limit it um, people often ask what kind of disease it is it's it's not it's it's, it's not a bacterium it's not a virus it's actually a, a single-celled uh, organism a protozoan a bit like an amoeba and it uh, infects the bird's throats and eventually causes swellings that are so severe the bird can no longer swallow so it can't feed and it okay. dies. It's a horrible yeah. disease. Um, and part of the survey, we had just a few years ago, we added this question, have you seen birds showing symptoms of this or sick birds in your garden? So help try to track the spread of it too. Okay. Yeah, no, the reason I was asking specifically about finches is because green finches have never really been a feature here for some reason. I've never seen them down through the years. Um, but 
on the flip side of that, we've never had as many chaffinches and particularly goldfinches, never had as many. Um, so I suppose interesting enough, since the last time we spoke, uh, I know we spoke a little bit during that episode on buzzards and how yes. they were growing in popularity. And again, at that stage, we wouldn't have seen too many buzzards where I am, but I knew they were, you know, they were sort of in the vicinity. But very recently, um, well, in the last two years, they have got quite plentiful around here. I would say very plentiful around here. And another one which was really interesting, it's not widespread yet, but you talked about the the woodpecker coming back across and starting to track sort of across Ireland at that point. And I live uh, County Leash, not far from Carlow Town, just for geographical location. And I still haven't seen one, but a friend of mine who lives a mile away sent me a picture one day and he said, what's this on on my feeder? And it was a a woodpecker. So I was delighted to see that. Um, Yep. I presume those trends are continuing. The the buzzard is getting more plentiful still, and the woodpecker is starting to move across further. Is that is that what you're seeing? Very much so. Yes, that's absolutely right. So uh, they're they're both big success stories of recent years. Um, in the case of the buzzard, it's uh, it's a recolonization. That those once that species, if you went back a few centuries, would have been a very common bird in Ireland. For those who don't know it, it's a, it's a bird of prey. It's a, it's quite a large bird of prey, a wingspan of about a meter, um, a big big hawk. Um, you'll we, we record them in the gar- in the Irish Garden Bird Survey because they do fly over people's gardens, and we ask people to record any birds of prey that they they see there. But people are probably more familiar with them, maybe seeing them along the sides of motorways perched on lampposts or sometimes circling high in the sky in the spring where they make the sort of it sounds like the, the sort of call they have is like a, like a cat mewing in the distance it's a very plaintive kind of sound yeah. and that's a species that was persecuted to virtual extinction in ireland over the course of the, the 20th century uh, but since that persecution has been stopped in in many cases some illegal killing of them does still occur but uh, it's mostly stopped and what's happened is those birds have managed to recolonize most of ireland and they, they hung on just in the northern part of County Antrim. Uh, but they've colonised down through Ulster and East Leinster from there, possibly aided by an influx of birds from Britain, who were it's a very common species. Now they're breeding again in all 32 counties and the density is increasing. And what's happening is that they're sort of taking back, to an extent, their share of the ecosystem from the crows. Um, in the absence of in the absence of buzzards, crows were able to, to grow to very large numbers, very high density of hooded crows, jackdaws and rooks particularly, as well as magpies, um, because they were able to scavenge on the roadkill. They were able to have the, the first pick of the, 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 the roadkill and the rodents and things like that. But as buzzards are returning, what we're finding is it's it's putting manners on the crows to a degree and it's also reducing some of that food. It's more of a natural balance. That, that is a real success story. Uh, yeah. With the great spotted woodpecker, that's um, as far as we know, we, nobody's quite certain, but there's no, no guaranteed evidence that that species was ever present as a breeding bird in Ireland before. Um, it may have been centuries ago, but nobody's quite certain. It's very hard to find records like that. What we can say for sure now is it has, it, it it is spreading uh, and it's probably only a matter of time before you do see them in your own garden, especially if they're as close to you as a mile. Uh, they're becoming, in, in Carlo particularly, they're becoming relatively widespread. That's a species which which uh, colonised, we know for sure, from genetic work from Britain. And it's the Irish Garden Bird Survey has allowed us to track the spread of that species because over the yeah. last 10 years or so, we're seeing it creeping up the rankings in the table all the time. For those who don't know it, it's um, it's sort of a medium-sized black and white bird, roughly the size of a blackbird, though with a very different body shape, much shorter 
much shorter tail, longer beak. Uh, so mostly black and white uh, with a patch of red uh, just just on, on the, the, the lower part of the belly, uh, just above its tail. And then the males also have a patch of red on the back of their head. The female has no red on her head. Uh, and then the juveniles, the young birds, just when they're short, just when they've left the nest at the, in, in, in sort of midsummer, they have red on top of their head. So that's how you can tell the difference between the, the, the three types. And it um, it made made landfall around 2005, we think. Um, what happened was it's a very common bird in Britain, very common bird all across uh, Britain and indeed much of uh, of Europe and Asia. And the woodpeckers don't like to fly across water if they can avoid it. They just have a real reluctance to do that. But it seems the population and density uh, population density in Britain got so high that young birds just had nowhere to go. They weren't going to find a territory. And what we saw was that the two points where you can see Ireland easily enough from Britain. So it was birds, some birds from Wales could see the Wicklow Mountains and flew across to Wicklow. And then other birds from Scotland could see County Down and flew across there. Okay. Uh, since then, the, these two populations have slowly but surely been building a number. They, they, they found very little by way of competition. They have a whole ecosystem that, that no other bird, no other type of woodpecker is using. So slowly but surely, they're starting to spread. And now they're they're, they're present across much of Ireland, although the, the highest densities are still in, in the East Coast. But it's a matter of time, I'd say, before they're everywhere in Ireland. Yeah, and obviously they like wooded areas. They do. Yeah. They do because uh, they're one of, the, one of the most important foods for them is uh, is beetle larvae. So beetle in beetles in 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 tree in tree bark or under the bark, especially in dead trees, they they drill on the trees to take those out. But they also excavate uh, they excavate holes in trees in which they will nest. So it's very important that they have access to those. We're starting to see them using things like telegraph poles as well, where they can't find enough trees. Right. Uh, and then um, in the in the autumn, the winter, actually quite an important food for them would be pine cones. They love to eat the pine nuts that are in the cones. But right. what we're finding more and more is that they're actually quite happy happy to come down to feeders in gardens. So they'll feed on peanuts and they particularly love suet blocks or those fat balls you get. That's a okay. high fat, high energy uh, food source. They absolutely love that. So through the survey, we're seeing more and more people now reporting these strange black and white birds from their gardens <laughs> and wondering what they are. It's really, really interesting. Yeah, for sure. Um, just before we finish on the on the bird survey, is there anything else obvious that's, you know, sort of has changed over the last few years? Anything in decline anything increasing quite a lot of the you know to say the obvious birds well what's interesting is that there's a lot of stability at the top of the table uh the top three okay. bird species in in terms of the number of guards in which they're present they're almost always the same and they have been for 35 years so almost always at number one it's the robin uh, and it's usually then in either second place or third place you have the blackbird or the blue tit sometimes they alternate yeah. uh, but that's sort of the general the general rule and those are three very common very uh, easy to observe birds in gardens yeah. um, i think that you know what what the survey does is it, it it shows us the number of gardens they're present in, but also you can tell a little bit about the numbers you're seeing. So in so m- most gardens, the vast majority, over 99%, will have a robin in them, but usually it's only one robin. Whereas mm-hmm. it may be you know, a, few, a smaller percentage may have something like chaffinches, but you might have 20 of them uh, yes. because they, they tend to flock, whereas robins are very solitary. Uh, so it's very interesting to see that. And also how, how it differs regionally some areas of the coast you'll see you'll see the birds retreating there when it gets particularly cold in the midlands for example you'll see birds responding to weather events so that that is quite interesting we have been mm. seeing some other increases sort of in tandem and probably linked to the decline in the green finches another finch called the linnet over the same period of time has been increasing in gardens and uh, the theory we have there you know, we need more investigation of this but the theory is that actually the the green finches are more dominant and slightly bigger than the linnets so they kind of keep them away from the gardens but 
But if the Lenets, or sorry, if the Greenfinches disappear from those gardens, well, nature abhors a vacuum, it allows an opportunity for those Linnets to come in and start taking that food that otherwise the Greenfinches would have. So it's there's winners and losers all the time. Uh, you see sometimes that if, if one species declines, it's a benefit to another to another species. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, it's we wouldn't know this without the thousands of people taking part in the survey. So to, to, to all of your listeners who've done this for us already, thank you so much. And if you haven't, please give it a go. It's it's a lot of fun. I will warn you, it becomes incredibly addictive. <laughs> um, you should be obsessed with watching out the window. When you see new species you haven't had in the survey yet, it's it's amazing how much of a buzz that can give you. Um, but then the data you're giving us, it's invaluable. It really helps us to, to see you know how the birds are doing and what we can do to help them. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, so we're going to chat now about, um, I suppose, how to attract in birds or more birds into your garden. And uh, I'll tell you, we spoke about it the last time where we were talking about habitat loss being, you know, being a, a factor, a, a big factor in, you know, bird, certain types of bird and nature generally decreasing. Um, and this this year I had in the garden, now they didn't stay very long, but I had two bulge finches here for a couple of months on a, a new wildflower meadow that I sowed. So it's a, it was a, a native Irish wildflower meadow. And it, it, I actually sowed it, sorry, I sowed it last year, but this was the second year. And it was unbelievable, the bird activity on that, which I suppose to me suggests very strongly that habitat is hugely important. And okay, it's a food source, but it's also a habitat. So the insects were there because of the, of the wildflowers the seed heads were there on the wildflowers that had gone over and both of that the insects and the seeds were obviously a food source and a habitat for for insects which in turn brought in the birds and which resulted in two bullfinches which as i say i only saw for a couple of weeks but it was very exciting to see them for the first time in the garden Yes, and the, the bullfinch is one species that the survey has shown us just in the last few years is starting to increase on garden feeders as well. It seems it's taken that 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 finch a bit of time to work out what feeders were, but I actually think, yes, that the what's bringing them to gardens more and more, it is people planting wildflower meadows. And also, no mow may has been a real boon for the bullfinches too, because their fav- one of their favourite foods of all are dandelion seeds. Yes. They absolutely love them. And it's actually really endearing to watch them go down onto your lawn and, and pluck off the little seeds one by one from the seed yeah. heads. It's, it's very dainty. Uh, I really like bullfinches. They're one of our most colourful garden birds, but they're also quite shy and retiring. Uh, and they're virtually always in pairs. It's rare to see one by itself. Exactly. Uh, so most birds, they, they come to get together during the breeding season. They're not particularly faithful. Um, but bullfinches are monogamous and they mate for life. And so um, if you see one of them, its partner is probably just a few feet away at most. Uh, and it, it adds a splash of colour to any garden. Really, uh, really beautiful little bird. One of, one of my favourites. Uh, and uh, I'm glad, glad you can see that the benefits of those native plants. Yeah, think, for sure. I think you know you're absolutely right. It's about recreating these habitats. Uh, you know the, the the fact of it is that our native birds evolved alongside those native plants and the native insects that rely on those plants, and it's all part of a, an ecosystem. These plants also provide seeds. They provide uh, leaf shoots and buds and flowers for some of the species that eat those. Bullfinches like to eat flowers a lot, and they often eat blossom on on uh, prunus trees and things like that, and on apples. Uh, but and so um, you know that that's that's sort of a, a factor that's often missing from gardens. And but you know, but putting out some wild wildflower seed and, and cultivating a wildflower meadow is a great way to, to track those in. Uh, and in doing that, what they're doing too is they're helping to control some of the pests that are in your garden. Uh, you know, th- there's a bird called a dunnock, for example, and its favourite food would be aphids, green fly, right. black fly, and so on. So uh, a great species to have in your garden. And you can encourage them by providing 
wildflowers and other native plants that also not just provide food um, in the form of berries, insects or seeds, but also provide cover. Because a lot of these insect-eating birds, life for them in the winter is very tough, especially because um, when it's raining or when it's very cold, it's much harder for them to find insects. Uh, the insects will be sheltering in those native plants and that's how they'll find them. But also having having some 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 evergreen plants that will, that will provide year-round cover really helps those birds to, to survive the, the worst that winter can throw at them. Our birds are amazing. They can survive temperatures of, of minus 30 without any problem whatsoever, far far worse than what Ireland can throw at them, provided they have enough food and shelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, if they don't get that, then they'll perish. So making sure that those boxes are ticked, that's very important. And of course, making sure they have water as well. That's a, a big limiting factor for a lot of our birds because when the temperatures drop below freezing, the water disappears. It turns to ice and they don't mm-hmm. have access to it. They need to drink it and they need to bathe in it. And the colder it gets, the more frequently those birds have to bathe because those feathers need to be in perfect condition without any dust or dirt in them because the more dirtier they are, the worse the insulating properties are. And so then when the cold weather comes at night and the temperatures drop, if the feathers have any dirt or damage or holes in them, it means that that, that, that they'll be susceptible to, to hypothermia, which is a big killer of lots of birds. But if the feathers are in tip-top condition, then they'll survive those cold nights without much problem, but they can only do that if they have access to water. Brilliant. Yeah, you're, you're you're linking lots of things for me. I, I, I'm going to stay going back here a little bit. And um, the first thing I, I actually watched, we watched the documentary last night. It was David Attenborough on it, and I only caught the last end, last bit of it. But there was two birds. Uh, I don't exactly know what birds they were. I missed the very start of it, but wh- when I turned it on, they were fighting. And one of the ways they had, they initially tried to throw one another off the cliff. This is at the edge of a sea, <laughs> and when that failed when they weren't able to separate, one of them wasn't able to throw the other off. They got sick on one another, which <laughs> which was amazing to see and very funny looking on the on the video. But um, the reason, so one of them then obviously uh, headed away. And the first thing, thing they did was they went to the snow and they rolled in the snow and they rolled in the snow to get that off because that's what they said was that Dirty feathers when they freeze have no insulating property and they wouldn't last overnight. So that's yep. that's really interesting that, <laughs> that you just said that. Um, uh, that and that's why birds need to needs to use bird bats, uh, which is interesting. Uh, but the second thing that you mentioned just previous to that, uh, I didn't realize the dunnocks were so beneficial in the garden. I was uh, I had have uh, raised beds quite near where that wildflower meadow was, and another vegetable garden at the back. And down the back, I would have. Uh, netted some of the brassicas the cabbage the cauliflower and so on um for cabbage white butterfly and i didn't have any issues there but i didn't net the other ones and i had absolutely no pests and i was putting it putting it down to the fact that it was so close to the wildflower meadow that i was getting the blue tits coming in taking off the caterpillars and other birds doing that it has to be the reason because i've had it every other year except now when this wildflower meadow has gone into position. So there's there's real benefits that you kind of don't expect to get from your, your wildflower meadow. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. I think that's absolutely right. I think that when, you know, when we restore these natural ecosystems, we see all of these ecosystem benefits. 
these birds are more than happy to help us to control these garden pests because, of course, in a natural setting, these creatures aren't pests at all. Everything's in balance mm-hmm. and uh, you don't have too much of one thing or too little of another thing. It, it all works naturally. It's we, it's we humans that have upset that balance and therefore in our gardens, it means that we end up using more chemicals and having to do a lot more work uh, where, in fact, nature will do a lot of that for us. It just, you know, it, it's just about making sure that you make space for nature and that you, let, you can allow it to thrive. The the blue tits you mentioned there and their fondness for, for caterpillars, that, that, that's something that really amazes me. Uh, so blue tits, they're a very common bird in Ireland. There's at least 1.1 million pairs of them nest in Ireland. We always count birds in breeding pairs. So, so if you talk about that, that's that's 2.2 million breeding adults uh, and then some non-breeders. And then at the end of the summer, you have all the juveniles that join their parents in that population. So they time their nesting season sort of very end of April into May during that time. And they have to, those, those 1.1 million pairs of blue tits, they, in a space of just two weeks, have to find between 10,000 and 20,000 caterpillars to feed to their chicks. Wow. Uh, you think about that over the space of just two weeks, 1.1 million pairs, each consuming up to 20,000 caterpillars. It's an astonishing number. Uh, and if it wasn't for the blue tits doing that, where would our gardens be? Where would our agriculture be? Using even more chemicals than it does already. I think that you know people often don't realize they take these birds for granted. And because we get these ecosystem services for free, we take them for granted. We don't really value them. If they were to disappear, we'd soon regret it. Um, you know, it, It's like what we see with pollination by insects as well. Mm-hmm. It's something that's worth countless billions to the economy, but something we take for granted. Um, but if it ever disappears, we'll certainly regret it, definitely. Yeah, that's a phenomenal amount and and definitely makes sense now uh, as to why I didn't have any issue there. Um, so anyone that's, you know, and I, I have a, a Grow Your Own Food course coming out uh, in the next couple of weeks, and that is a key part of it is building up the biodiversity in the area to get those natural benefits. But it, it's real, like it's not... You know, as you said there, if there's that much, if they need that much caterpillars during that during that period of time, it it really is a huge benefit to your garden, and and you should be doing everything you can, I suppose, to put the ecosystem in place so that you get that benefit. Oh yes, and and, and the the great thing with blue tits, particularly, and their close relatives, the 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 grey tits and the cold tits, which also have a voracious appetite for for caterpillars. One way you can really help them and really give a you know a good chance of them coming into your garden is to put up a nest box for them because one of the limiting factors on those species is nest sites uh, and yeah. putting up a good nest box uh, just one in your garden and um, that almost you know it's a it's almost a guarantee but it's a very good chance they'll come and nest and then they'll have food in terms of caterpillars and other insects right on the doorstep right there in your garden and it's a good way to get them cleaned out. I've gone even so far in my own garden. Um, I live in North County Wicklow. It's got a very small garden um, with room just for one nest box. I have it on my back wall uh, and i plant what i call my sacrificial cabbages i actually put cabbages out deliberately which aren't netted or anything i let the white butterflies come in lay their eggs all over them crawling with caterpillars those blue tits come down they feed it they, they clear off they clear them off in a day or two uh, but it means that they have a good reason to nest where i want them to nest and then they clean out all the other pests as well so it's it's something very easy to do it's very cheap very cost effective uh, and far more environmentally friendly than using chemicals and also you know driving yourself nuts trying to control all these pests <laughs> and, and so on when the birds will do it for you for free yeah, grateful. Brilliant. brilliant. Um, we'll talk about nesting boxes in a minute. Just in terms of feeding, then. So we, I've spoke about it several times on the podcast before. You know, what foods do you guys recommend? I know back a number of years ago there was there was a lot of talk about um, that we shouldn't feed the birds too much; that they need to, you know, get their own food sources and. I know the recommendation from bird bodies all over all over Europe now is that 
we should, should definitely supplement feed because there is a shortage of natural foods typically. So, yeah, that, 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 that's it. Absolutely. So the birds that come into our bird feeders, they're, they're coming there because they need the food, essentially. They, they wouldn't, if there was enough natural food out there, that they wouldn't need to do that. And that would always be their first option. And indeed, even though it may look like the birds are coming and going from your feeders all day long, they actually are still mostly eating food that they find out in the wild. They just use it to supplement their diets and give them that extra boost. But then when really cold weather hits or if it's raining for several days in a row, then it can become a real lifeline because th then they realize, well, actually, there's a reliable source of food that I can eat here. Uh, and you're looking for stuff that's really calorie rich. That's what benefits them the most. The real key, I suppose, is variety. The more different types of food you put out for the birds, the more different species you'll attract in because mm -hmm. each one of them has evolved its own niche, its own dietary requirements. So I would say there's a, there's a few there's a few staples in gardens that work very well. So peanuts, number one, that's that's a really good source of food. As many birds like to eat those, they're very high in protein, they're very high in oils, so fat, uh, which is you know, very important. They need the high calories, uh, and they're very easy to, to very easy to feed to birds. Uh, just a word of warning: just never put them out loose. Always put them in the wire mesh feeders because it's dangerous. If a bird could take a whole peanut, it could tries to swallow it, it could easily choke on that. Um, but if you can just take it a beak for a time, there's no risk of choking. Uh, and it makes the food go a lot further as well. So that works very well. Now, I know that the price of peanuts is going up and up all the time. They're not cheap. Um, so, you know, don't worry if you, if you don't want to feed peanuts, because even better again would be sunflower seeds. Sunflower yeah. seeds work really well. There's lots of other seed mixes you can get. We sell loads of them through the Bird Charlie shop, and you find a whole range there. But perennially, our best seller is pure sunflower seed, uh, because with, with that, there's very little by way of waste. The birds won't want to eat them. Now, people think that they're wasting them. They don't eat the whole, they don't eat uh, the kernel. They, they, so they eat the kernel, they don't eat the husk outside it. So you'll yeah. see all the, the, the husk being discarded on the ground, uh, and that can look like a lot of waste, but in fact, that's the birds just eating the seed inside, as they would in the wild. Mm -hmm. You can actually get um, a commercial product now, that they call it sunflower hearts. It's just a fancy word for for pre-shelled sunflower seeds and they're even easier for those birds to eat so they absolutely love them they're a real favorite of the bullfinches that we were mentioning earlier okay, so yeah. it's a good way to track them into your garden uh, suet works very well too so suet is the fat from around the animal's kidneys and uh, it, uh, it's available from, from butchers but you get lots of commercially available suet treats and fat balls all of these the reason why suet is chosen is because it's very solid, even at room temperature. It doesn't melt as easily um, uh, as other fats do. So that means that there's no chance of it melting on the bird's feathers and fouling them or going rancid easily. So that uh, yeah. so that, that helps there. Fruit is another great thing for birds. Uh, apples particularly. So if you if you find some apples, if they happen to be a bit past their best, a bit wrinkled, a bit bruised, so much the better. You can sometimes get those as bargains in supermarkets that you know they're yeah. going to throw out. Uh, and what I like to do is either put them whole on the lawn or cut them in half and spear them onto branches. And members of the thrush family, like the blackbird, the song thrush, the missile thrush, two other uh, winter visitors called the, the redwing and the field fair, they'll come and they'll feed on those. They like them very much. And also another bird called the black cap, uh, a small warbler, which would used to only be present in Ireland in the summer, but now spending the winter in Ireland as well, these gardens foods can be a real lifeline for them and they particularly love apples. Why they're so successful is that a lot of these birds, particularly the migratory thrushes I mentioned there, the, the, the field fern, the red wing, they come to us from much further north. They don't breed in Ireland, they migrate here for the winter. They're not used to people feeding them. You know, when they arrive in a garden, they don't know what peanuts are. They don't know what the seeds are. It's not what they eat. They, they'll eat worms. But if it's frozen over on the ground, they can't find those. But they do recognize apples because in the wild, they would eat crab apples. When they see a yeah. domestic eating apple, they just think, well, that looks like a big crab apple which essentially is what it is, and they realize they can eat that. And uh, what we find is if we do get a sudden cold spell, like when we had the beast from the east, these birds will flock in their thousands into gardens, sometimes just as a last refuge, the last place where they can, they can possibly find food. And if they find apples there, they'll survive. Because we had 
many tragic cases where these birds were in gardens, they were around bird tables, there was food all over the place, but they didn't recognize it as edible and they starved mm. to death because they didn't know they could eat that food. But with apples, at least they know that they can. So there are a few tips. I mentioned earlier with water, that's that's also really, really important. Um, even other fruits like bananas, things like that, they can work very, very well. Uh, and so can a lot of leftover food too. Um, I know a lot of people like to put out bread for the birds. Uh, it's not my wouldn't be my top rec- recommendation. Uh, you know, white sliced pan isn't great food for birds. In small quantities, it's not harmful. Uh, but if it forms the major part of their diet, it's not good because mm-hmm. it's 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 basically empty calories in a way. There's lots of carbohydrate there, but there's very little by way of vitamins and other minerals. There's very uh, little by way of protein, so it's difficult for them, and even very little way of fat, so it's difficult for them to survive. Um, so, uh, you know, as a stopgap, bread can help. Uh, better to use whole meal or whole grain bread if you can, rather than white bread. Uh, but what I actually prefer, again, is actually stale cake. Uh, and, in the, you know, Christmas not far away, perhaps people may find themselves <laughs> with an abundance of, of Christmas cake or Christmas pudding around. And birds love that. It's full of sugar, full of fat, full of fruit, ideal for birds. Just one word of warning there as well. Uh, Christmas cake and Christmas puddings contain raisins and sultanas. And uh, they're fine for birds, they're fine for humans, but they're very toxic to dogs. So if you have a dog or if you have foxes visiting your garden, I would avoid doing that in case any of the scraps hit the ground. If a dog eats a few raisins, it could die. So so it's um, you know, just so use caution. But for the birds, it's absolutely fine. Yeah, brilliant. And so yeah, they're the, the and it is, it's correct. Like the the more diversity of food, the bigger the diversity of birds that you'll have for sure. In terms of setting up uh your bird boxes, so I think this is something that's underutilized i would think and there's probably a case of there's a lot of bird boxes going up just because of their decorative properties um you know to get these fancy ones which have no they look pretty but they actually have no probably benefit to to birds so maybe just talk a little bit about that and correcting choosing the correct ones Yes, it's a big bugbear of mine, actually. So I'm glad you've asked me about it because, yes, you do often see nest boxes on, on sale where it's very much form over function, where they've got like a little replica of a house or some sort of cabin. If, if, if the, the basic criteria met, the, the birds don't really care what the outside looks like. So it's, it is possible to have a decorative nest box that's also very functional, mm-hmm. but unfortunately, a lot of them aren't. So one of the ones that really gets me, you see something made of like half a coconut shell or something like that. That's yeah. absolutely useless. The, the, the birds just won't, it just doesn't meet the needs. Something that's, anything that's made of woven wicker that's full of holes no this won't work the birds basically want a fortress so you're talking about something that's made just of good solid plywood where it's nice and nice and uh, and, and, and and sealed uh, you want to make sure ideally that it has a sloping roof on the top of it so that if any water lands on it which let's face it in ireland it will and <laughs> um, it'll it'll drain off very easily it won't soak into the box it has an opportunity just to, to to fall off the roof you want to have the hole in the box quite high up so that when the water does drip off the roof it falls past the hole rather than going into it yeah. and a very simple way to, to 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 sort of maximize the benefits of that roof is angle the box forward slightly and um, just a few degrees of an angle will mean the water is much less likely to go into the hole you want to make sure it has a few drainage holes in the bottom because inevitably some water will get in mm-hmm. and you want to make sure that it can air dry very quickly so it doesn't chill so fungus doesn't grow inside that kind of thing so that's a good way for to make sure the eggs and, and, and the chicks are, are protected in there uh, that's that's really important and one of the things then you want to make sure that you have the right style of box for the species that you're trying to attract or that are in your area. Uh, the blue tit is a very good one to start with because every garden in Ireland has a good chance of attracting that in. It's a very common and widespread species and it also readily uses nest boxes. But one of the pitfalls you see is that very often the entrance hole is too big for the bird. The birds okay. are very um the birds are very uh 
very sensitive to that, actually, because a bird isn't happy to go inside a nest box hole or a cavity that a larger, more dominant species could evict it from. So yes. in the case of the blue tit, they're feisty little guys, but uh, the great tit, which is a bit bigger, a uh, close cousin of theirs, uh, it would happily evict them and, and kick them out of a nest hole. Um, but however, if, if the hole is small enough, then the great tit won't fit in, but blue tit can. So for a blue tit, you're looking for the hole to be uh, 25 millimeters across. That's an inch in diameter. Okay. But when you look at that, it looks like that's way too small. There's no way the bird could fit through that. Yeah. But it can, because that bird is tiny. When you look at that bird too, you have to remember, mostly what you're seeing is feathers that have been fluffed up with air below them. The actual bird's muscles and skeleton below that are really tiny. They can fit through that gap with no problem, but the great tits and the sparrows can't get into a victim. So that's that's yeah. um, that, that's a, a good uh, good option there. When it comes to locating those boxes where you should sit the way you situate them in a garden, for those ones that are basically fortresses with a hole in the top, it's not that important. You want to have them out of the prevailing wind, slightly shaped, uh, as high up as you can get them, so making sure they're not near anywhere where a cat or something can get to them easily. Um, they probably won't be able to get into the box if it's well built, but there's a chance they could swipe the youngsters as they're trying to come out and take their first flight. But they don't mind too much because they're so protected inside the box. Mm-hmm. For other other birds, like, like robins, for example, and blackbirds, they won't nest inside a cavity like that. They want to have an open front on the nest box. It's much more open, uh, usually with a little lip or a shelf in the front to stop the, the, the nest or the chicks from falling out. Uh, but um, you want to have it so that, uh, therefore, that it's it's actually quite secluded. You want to have it ideally then lower down, maybe behind something prickly like a bramble, uh, some brambles or a holly bush or something like that that makes it much harder for cats or foxes or other predators to sneak up and get inside. So for them, it's a bit more um, trying to keep it semi-hidden and protected. Uh, mm-hmm. These birds will find them. They're very good at seeking out nest sites. So give it a go. And in terms of timing, um, I, I, we normally say as a rule of thumb, you want to have your nest box in place by the middle of February. So Valentine's Day, 14th of February is a good sort of benchmark for that. So it's a great project to do over the winter. Anytime over the Christmas, you find yourself with a few minutes to spare, put up a nest box in your garden, let it weather in for a few months. And what happens is those birds in, in the late winter, early spring, when they're going around looking for food, they're keeping a mental note of, of potential nesting sites. And if they see the box there, they think, oh, we should check that out in a few weeks, which could be a good place to nest. Uh, and uh, so that often works well. So people, you know, people often think that, you know, it's just put them up just before the nesting season in April or May but that's too late the birds have already decided where they're going to nest by that stage brilliant and another another thing that we spoke about previously and it's it's only recently that I've kind of well in the last two years I've noticed really noticed the benefits of it positioning of your wild bird feeders is is massively important and we did we did speak about this previously but where where I see it so I I've two feeding stations essentially now they're, they're quite close to one another so i just call it the one station it's two it's two big bird tables each with four feeders on it sorry four on one tree on the other and they're positioned about two meters from a good solid hedge um and then right behind that maybe three meters away is you know the the, the natural hedge fully grown trees and so on and that there's two things that that sort of spring to mind obviously we have the the rule which is gardeners still think that it doesn't apply to them where you don't cut your your hedge from is it the first of march to the first of september Uh, yeah correct yeah so gardeners still think that that rule doesn't apply but it's hugely important if it's you know for your for your nesting boxes because any disturbance even if it's only a light trim on the outside the birds don't like that um I definitely noticed that it also that hedge that's quite close to my feeding area the birds use that as a getaway so I have a Jack Russell Jack Russell uh, 
rarely rarely has any success, but in the early days would have had uh, look looking towards the feeders for 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 something to catch. But she still regularly has a go. But I just notice now that the birds are used to it, and the minute they they see any activity, it's just a quick little two second flight right into the center of the hedge, and they're protected. So I suppose there's two things: position your position your feeders somewhere where they do have these getaways. That's that they're not left open and vulnerable. And the other predator that I had for a little while around here was the sparrowhawk. And what I found with with that was one of those feeding stations, and you you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but what it seemed to be was that the sparrowhawk came in a sort of a swooping action. And they like to fly through where the feeder is, grab the bird and continue to flight out the other side. Yes. And one of those feeder one of the feeding stations was right in front of the hedge so that that wasn't possible they would have had to come through and then go up really quickly to get out but the other one was actually slightly further forward and if they came at a certain angle they could make that continuous fly through and i did have for a couple of weeks this uh, situation where they were flying through and, and grabbing the birds now i know it's that's natural and all the rest of it but when you're feeding them you don't like to see them getting taken away so I moved it back in slightly, and that that stopped completely. So positioning seems to be very important. You're absolutely right. Yes. So hedges like that are amazingly important for birds, both as, a, as an escape route and a place they can they can go to where they're protected when danger comes, but also a safe place for them to wait their turn when they're going for the feeder. They'll queue up inside the hedge because, again, there's a, a literally a pecking order at the feeder. So the, the more dominant birds, like the great tits, the robins, they'll be able to move in and take food, but they come and go all the time. And you'll have the smaller birds, like your coal tits, um, uh, species like that. They're waiting until there's a gap, and then they'll dash in and grab food. They can retreat back to the hedge. So that works very well. Oh, that makes sense now. Um, yeah, because yeah, I wondered why that was the case. Why some of them were sitting on the outside of the of the hedge, looking and waiting. Um, but now that makes sense. So I didn't realize that. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the waiting and, and the sort of the, the, the sort of natural pecking order does it does evolve at the and it's great. You can see these dynamics if you watch them. You can see how they react to each other and which bird is more frightened of others and which species are bolder and braver. Um, and then of course when 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 the sparrowhawk arrives, they all scarper. So the sparrowhawk it's uh, it's our most common bird of prey. They're they're very widespread in Ireland. It's a it's a, most of us do get them in our gardens from time to time. Uh, of course, there's nothing wrong with them whatsoever for, with them in killing small birds. That's what they feed on uh you know it's, it's perfectly natural that they do that uh, when people get upset about it i mean it's i understand that it's not something you want to see happen in your garden uh but all of our birds are predators at some stages in their lives at least mm-hmm. and uh what i would say is something like something like a blue tit uh it's a really voracious predator we just talked earlier of how many tens of thousands <laughs> of caterpillars baby butterflies they're murdering each year they end far more lives than sparrowhawks do but of course we humans you know it's not for us to, you know it'd be wrong for us to to make put human morals on these birds yep. and make criticize the way they live so sparrowhawks doing that it is perfectly normal and natural but i do understand how people don't want to see that or they feel bad they've attracted these small birds into the garden and they've been picked off by the sparrowhawk yeah um so i think what you're saying there yeah trying to interrupt those flight paths that, that can certainly help i'm always i'm always torn with that too because our sparrowhawks do need help as well they've every yeah. bit as much right to survive and one, one thing if people do have the sparrowhawks causing this problem in their garden the comfort to take from that is that the sparrowhawk would kill the same number of birds anyway you know they they mm. eat, eat one maybe maybe two a day um and 
And if your feeder wasn't there, they'd catch them somewhere else. It just happens to be, you see it happening in front of you, but it's yeah, happening yeah. all the time anyway. But no, I, I absolutely see, see your point. And actually, yes, it's, you know, it, it, it can make them very vulnerable, particularly a poorly located feeder just becomes, you know, like like target practice for a sparrowhawk. So from that yeah. point of view, I think you did exactly the right thing. And yeah, moving the feeders, making sure that those um, those swooping routes are, are blocked off, and that can really help. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And they are, while, as I said, when you're, when you're feeding the wild birds, it feels a little bit funny to see them being taken away. Um, so that's why I moved it. But they are, the sparrowhawk in itself is a beautiful bird. And yes. the the flying path, the flying motions of it are are beautiful, really beautiful. So, and it is, it is nature. I, I completely understand that. But uh, when you are feeding them, I, I guess you, you try to protect yeah. what you're feeding a little bit, yeah? Um, Absolutely. <laughs> so the other, I, I, I don't know, this doesn't, fall under sort of bird watching as as such but i've had a huge increase in bats recently around oh, nice. around my house um that's not really i guess it doesn't fall under bird watching anyway so doesn't it's not no it doesn't but it, it certainly falls under conservation and, and in bird watch ireland we're very much about what we call birds plus so the birds are real flagship and ambassadors for our for our ecosystem the most visible form of wildlife that we have and so what we do bird watch ireland we're about conserving and protecting ireland's wild birds and their habitats and we're protecting those habitats not just for the birds um but also for all sorts of other uh, animals including bats which are a very important part of our ecosystem and i'm guessing that um your wildflower meadow is playing an important role there too because the the the, the, the bats they feed on insects flying insects and uh, so native plants attract native insects which attract bats and bats um, they're amazing to have around they, they, they do such a service for us in terms of hoovering up things like mosquitoes uh you know i'm always constantly amazed that people often think that mosquitoes are just something you get when you're abroad we have 12 different species of mosquitoes in ireland i'm constantly getting bitten by them in the summer and the bats help to hoover those up as do birds like swallows and swifts so uh you know they, they, they do us a service there and having native plants it's a great way to benefit them you can also get bat roosting boxes a bit like a nest box for birds but these are ones for bats to sleep in uh they, most of them sleep during the day of course and putting them up around a garden can can really help they they, they take they're usually not quite as successful in terms of the take-up rate as bird nest boxes would be and it can take a bit longer maybe a few years for the bats to learn what they are uh but um give it a go and it's certainly it's certainly worth a worth your while and bad bats are bats are amazing i almost think of them like uh like honorary birds you know they're, they're yeah. flying mammals they're amazing yeah brilliant yeah i i don't mind having them a lot of people a lot of people uh when i tell them that i've bats they're a bit they're not because they have this perception of them getting caught in their hair and you know that which i don't believe to be true either but no, it's uh, not <laughs> yeah there's, um, there's, um, there's no there's no downside to bats whatsoever um so just to, yeah they, they, there's a lot of fear around them and there is something that i suppose that's very otherworldly about them um sadly for myself it's, it's a long time since i've had to worry about anything getting caught in my hair i don't have very much of it <laughs> <laughs> but uh but uh but but uh, no there's, there's no truth to that to, to that uh, old story that bats get caught in people's hair i think what happened what happened was that people often see bats swooping close to their heads because very often we have mosquitoes and midges around us yeah. Um, and the bats are actually coming in to eat those, and they can swoop very close to your head, and that can be yeah, that can be scary. But the bat knows exactly where you are. Their their eyesight is good. Their echolocation ability, where they use their sonar to find out where they are, is also amazing. They won't hit you. And um, they're you know they they they, they uh, will will roost in attic spaces sometimes, and places like that, and, and and roof roof spaces and and so on. But they don't cause any damage when they're there at all. Yeah. Um, their their droppings are very dry. They don't cause any kind of disease. Um, and and the, the fact of that is too that you know, it's mostly 
things like beetle skeletons and things like that, like the exoskeletons. It doesn't sound very pleasant, but it's no danger whatsoever. They don't spread any kind of disease. Uh, the ones we have in Ireland don't drink your blood. Nothing, nothing like that. So they're <laughs> actually they're actually completely harmless. Nothing but a benefit. So I, I hope that that fear of bats will disappear because there's, there's no reason to be frightened of bats. There's nothing to fear from them at all. Yeah, for sure. Um, anything else that's you know stepping outside of garden birds? What are you guys seeing across Ireland? Um, you know, improvements, anything that's you know recognizable to people, but maybe under under a bit of pressure, or anything that's having a, a roaring success over the last few years. I know you were working on the last time we spoke. There was there was a bit of work on on the, was it the corn crake you were trying to reestablish? Right. How, yes. how's, how's things like that going? Corncrakes that they're doing, they're doing okay. The population of corncrakes uh, has declined massively in Ireland. It, it was once a very, very common bird, a bird very much associated with farmland and a particular type of farming. Uh, and the decline in 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 in, in tillage farming, the decline particularly in, in hay meadows, uh, you know, in favour of silage and uh, of cattle, that has really hit that bird very, very hard. So the, the corncrake is a bird that uh, the declines are astronomical. Back there was a survey done in around 1950. And they found there were 50,000 pairs of corncrakes in Ireland at that time. Today, there's maybe 120, 130 pairs left. Oh, wow. That's all. And then quite marginalised areas that sort of pushed out to, to sort of the, the the rougher farming areas and some of the islands too, where there's a lot of conservation work being done for them. Yeah. I think it'll remain uh, it'll remain present as an Irish breeding species, but uh, they they won't return to the vast majority of the country because the habitat no longer exists for them. And they're, I suppose, emblematic of the decline we've seen in a lot of farmland birds. Many of our farmland birds are in big trouble. Uh, many of those birds that are completely unrelated to each other belong to different families eat different foods the, the, the common denominator is that they rely on, on farmland habitat. and the habitat is disappearing that's it so one we're very worried about is a beautiful bird called the curlew it's one of the oh, most yeah. iconic Irish birds there. it's the largest wading bird we have in Ireland the, the waders it's a brown bird with an incredibly long down curved beak so it's very distinctive and uh, you know even a few decades ago, it would have needed no introduction because everyone in Ireland would be familiar with that species, but it's absolutely vanishing at an alarming rate to the extent that it may be extinct here as a breeding bird within the next 10 years, which is, is terrifying. We're seeing declines not just in Ireland, but elsewhere in Europe and Asia where this species breeds, and it could be a bird that, that's headed for extinction. Uh, another bird that we're very worried about is the puffin, everybody's favourite, um, oh. which Ireland is very important. We have very important puffin colonies around the, around the Irish coasts. That's a bird that, uh, because of changes in the marine environment, climate change, particularly affecting their fish stocks, overfishing is having an impact on them as well. It's predicted that they could be extinct globally within 100 years, um, which would be an absolute tragedy. And it's a species that, you know, uh, I think a lot of people, when they hear that, they get very sad about it because there's something almost almost like a cartoon character about a puffin. Yeah. It's like it's, it's an amazing, it's like it's not real. Um, but they are real and Ireland has a lot of them, uh, but unfortunately, the, the fewer and fewer of their young are surviving. Their main nesting colonies, the biggest colonies in the world are actually in Iceland and in Norway. And we're seeing a complete collapse of breeding there. Uh, the adults can live for a long time, uh, but uh, they're not producing chicks, and uh, that's not sustainable. Uh, so that that's a worry. So a lot of our work in Birdwatch Ireland uh, it centres around the farmland birds and around seabirds. Uh, now it's not all doom and gloom. There's some real big success stories. Uh, we do a lot of work in Birdwatch Ireland, uh, funded through the National Parks and Wildlife Service. Also, work we do at Dublin Port in, in Dublin um, for, for birds called terns, T E R N, uh, and we've had an amazing success, success, particularly with a bird called the roseate tern. Um, on Rockabill Island off the coast of Skerries in North County Dublin and at Ladies Island Lake in County Wexford and those are the largest colonies of that species in uh, in all of Europe now indeed up to 80% Brilliant. of the European population is on Rockabill Island in Dublin Brilliant. which is amazing and uh, my colleague 
Dr. Stephen Newton and his team over the course of the last 30 years, they've really managed to change the fortunes for that species. Sadly, um, this past summer, a lot of these birds were hit by bird flu. Uh, so bird flu has become a big problem. It's not something we have to worry about in our gardens with our garden birds. They're, they're not uh, really coming into contact with this disease. But colonial nesters, you know, at sea cliffs and on islands where they're closely packed together, um, this disease does spread and it does pose, pose a threat to them. Uh, so that's the thing with, with with birds. You can never be complacent. Uh, nothing's ever truly safe. Uh, fortunes can change very rapidly for good or for bad. Uh, so that's why constant monitoring is always so important and why surveys are so important. Yeah, for sure. Um, I know you guys obviously doing doing brilliant work and there's, I suppose, lots of, lots of things that people can can do to get involved, can, to, can help. Um, just firstly, we're, I'm covering an episode this week on... Christmas gift for gardeners and obviously you guys have a lot of products on your shop uh, like we spoke about earlier the foods uh, proper feeders proper nesting boxes and so on so I think that's worth mentioning and also you know the support that that you get from from memberships is is hugely important to you guys so tell us all about that. Oh, with pleasure, and thank you very much indeed. Uh, with our, with our shop, um, yeah, we sell a whole range of, of books and binoculars, telescopes, bird food and feeders, all of these things, toys, and uh, all of the proceeds from that go to support our work as a charity. So all the profits go to to support that conservation work, which I think is is so important. You mentioned membership there as well, and membership makes a great gift. Um, you know, I'm really passionate about membership because uh, it's it's really putting your money where your mouth is and voting for nature and showing your support uh, because all the money we raise from that goes to support our conservation work as well. Uh, when people join Birdwatch Ireland, they get a lovely welcome pack with a, with a, with a calendar of lovely 2024 Irish birds calendar. We do this every year. Uh, we also then have a set of posters, including a garden bird poster, a seabird poster. Uh, you get uh, information about our 20 nature reserves around the country you can go to. We have over 450 events that you can go to all over the country. We, we're lucky to have 30 very active, very committed volunteer-run branches around the country that do a whole lot of local work and give us this grassroots support you get our magazine wings uh, that comes to you throughout the year in the post and then for our family and for our junior members you also regularly get our bird detectives kids magazine as well uh, you get other free gifts it's really nice um, so you get a lot out of it but the most important thing is that all the money from that goes to support the conservation work which is vital uh, it's what we call unrestricted funding so it means that we can use that for, for our priority projects that the ones that the ones that aren't necessarily the ones that the state are going to fund or that aren't ticking boxes necessarily ones that we know when we see when we see a decline in a species or we see something needs action, we don't have to wait then to raise the funding or to beg and borrow for it. Um, we have the money there because of the generosity of our members. So that's really important. Uh, but also, it's not just about the money. The more members we have, the more clout that gives us when we're looking for support for nature. We're looking for the powers that be to do the right things by Ireland's farmers, for example, to make sure that they're properly supported in their biodiversity measures as, as they deserve to be, and uh, to make sure that you know politicians come election time from whatever party they happen to belong to, they can't ignore the environmental message. They know that Borough Turn has support. And by becoming a member or joining your friends and family up as members for Christmas, it shows that support in a very real way. Uh, so people can find details of all of those things at birdwatcherland.ie. And you'll also find loads of tips there on how to feed the birds, how to identify the birds in your garden, and how to take part in the Irish Garden Bird Survey this winter as well. Brilliant. Um, you're just after reminding me of something else, the events. I know you mentioned, did you say 400 and something events? Yeah, about so, 450 a year, yeah. Brilliant. Um, at the last time we spoke, you were you used to do a dawn, a dawn yep. walk. And uh, you weren't sure if it was going to be happening, I think, that year. But is, does that still happen? And oh, it does. Like a, 
like a four thirty start or something like that, is it? Yeah, it, it it depends on where you are in the country. So yes, during COVID, obviously we had to pause those because of the restrictions. But they're no, they're they're back with the bang now. So um, most of the dawn course events that we run, they're usually in the in the first two weeks of May. That's kind of peak time for birdsong in Ireland. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this is the, it, it depends on where you are in the country. So this is where if you happen to be in the in the west, the fur, the further west you are, the more of a lion you can have uh, because the sun rises in the east and the birds are prompted <laughs> to sing by by the first appearance of the sun. So I do. Um, I'm very much involved with the, with the South Dublin branch of Birdwatch Ireland. I've been involved with that ever since I was a child. And um, I'm lucky enough to be one of the leaders of their their, their walks each each May. Um, and we also do the, the I've been very involved with the RTE Dawn course that Derek Mooney does each May as well. Yeah. And what we find is the Dawn course events on the East Coast, um, they normally would have to start around 4am at that time in May because that's when the sun is rising. Whereas on the West Coast, maybe around Kerry or Galway, you can get away with a 5am start because the sun hasn't reached there yet. Brilliant. Um, it's been, like the last time, really interesting chat. Lots of really valuable information there for people and lots of great tips, you know, to help and support birds in your garden. And uh, as we said earlier, the benefit is not one way. You know, it's not, uh, it's, there's certainly huge benefit. Obviously, just the visual benefit and, and the fun of watching watching birds in your garden and, and especially things like goldfinches on the feeders. Uh, watching them having a row, listening to them having a row is, is great fun. They're very noisy and, and very boisterous when they're trying to push one another away from the feeder. So that's that's great fun. But there is the the other benefit of, you know, what they're going to in terms of controlling pests in your garden yeah, as part of the natural the natural way, I guess, of of a garden. And I certainly have seen the benefits of it, and, and you will too, by you know, restoring some level of I suppose, habitat within your garden and then incorporating that near your vegetable plots and so on, you will see wider benefits. But it has been, as, as it was the last time, really interesting. And uh, we could chat for a long time, Niall, but uh, <laughs> we, we'll, we'll sign off there. And thank you very, very much for coming on Master My Garden Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've loved our chat. And uh, yeah, thank you very much indeed. So that's been this week's episode. Uh, really interesting as a, as a, the last episode was. It's been a, it's been a long time, almost three, actually slightly more than three years ago now. The information is is still the same, you know, but you can see that there is improvements. Like definitely, there was no such thing around here as a woodpecker. The last time I spoke to Niall and three years later, they're they're not far away from me. I haven't as of yet seen one in my garden, but they're not far away, which is a good sign. And you know, other other things. Are, are becoming obvious as well for me having the, the birds in the garden has a wider benefit and certainly when it comes to you know controlling pests in the vegetable garden which we talk a huge amount on in the podcast it it has a real a real benefit that to be honest with you a couple of years ago i didn't really know how deep that benefit could be but it's clear now that it is it is hugely beneficial uh, check out board watch, watch ireland uh, support them with their garden survey Support them with their memberships if you can, and they have a shop there for you know any any sort of bird related gifts or bird watching related gifts. So well worth checking out. And that's been this week's episode. Thanks for listening, and until the next time, happy gardening. Mm-hmm.